in our role, there's an unspoken, spoken kind of, I guess, understanding that when you have your headphones on, you're to be left alone. Like, is the building on fire? Okay, you can interrupt my headphone time. <laughs> is the building not on fire? Now's not, now's not the appropriate time for a conversation. From the cubicle to the lab, the studio to the war room, climbing the corporate ladder or joining a scrappy startup, experience a day in the life of the jobs you want. This is the Experience a Day in the Life podcast. We interview professionals, entrepreneurs, and recent grads about what a day is actually like on the job, hour by hour, or as we like to call it, their adiddle, spelled A-D-I-T-L, which stands for a day in the life. This podcast will inspire you to gain experience beyond the classroom and launch a career of your own. We're your hosts, Chris DeBeau and Matt Poe. Welcome to part one in the two-part software and soft skills series. In this episode, we're going to experience a day in the life, hour by hour, of Keith Sora, a software engineer at Blend, so you can decide if this is a career that's right for you. Blend, formerly known as Blend Labs, is a company that works on bringing transparency to consumer finance through creative software solutions, and Keith works on coding the back-end software to do so. Let's learn how he does it and get right into the day. It's 6 a.m. on a Monday in New York City, and Keith and his husband are waking up and getting ready to hit the gym. It's one of his favorite parts of the day because it wakes him up and gets him feeling productive. So after the gym, he commutes to work on his bike, and this is usually the case for Keith unless it's icy or raining for obvious reasons. Keith arrives at the office around 9.30, but not before he pays a visit to Starbucks. Today on the agenda as a whole, Keith is checking system logs, examining code reviews and pull requests from members of his team, working on his design spec project, pod stand-ups, sprint planning, design review, and some deep work in coding. Jam-packed day. Let's meet Keith and learn more about what he does. My name is Keith Sora, and I have the uh, ubiquitous title of software engineer, called many different things at many different places. And I work for a company called Blend, uh, formerly Blend Labs. And we are a company that works on bringing transparency to consumer finance through uh, software, creative software solutions. Basically, we partner with lenders, um, reporting agencies, credit agencies, and consumers to create software that makes getting home loans easier. We started with um, basic mortgages and we're expanding into products like auto loans, and all kinds of other consumer finance uh, right now, just in the consumer space. <clears throat> but the, you never know what the future might hold. <laughs> Basically, we build software that empowers lenders or, or the partners that we use. Uh, while what we build is consumer-facing, most consumers will never see anything about our company when they log in. So you may go to your bank website and apply for a mortgage or um, an auto loan or home insurance and not see our logo. You'll see the logo of the companies that we're, we're representing. You would think of us as powered by Blend. When I originally started at Blend, I came in working on uh, integrations engineering, which is a big part of what we do because we're kind of a hub for a lot of different partners. Like I said, credit agencies, banks, legacy software, non-legacy software. And so building the network that connects all those things is a pretty integral part of the company. So we have a team of folks, uh, which we used to call integrations, that did just that part uh, as opposed to building the core kind of user-facing part of the platform. 
And that has evolved over time as the company's grown to be a more central part of kind of our ecosystem of software that we're developing. And so now we just go by the title software engineer, just like all the other engineers at the company. And uh, I generally still focus a lot on those sort of integration points. So if you perhaps have a legacy system and you need to talk to, um, you know, some new first class cloud software like Salesforce or something like that, we would, our, our group would help construct those kind of integration points. In case you didn't know the difference between legacy and non-legacy softwares, Keith told us the difference between the two is legacy software can be thought of as any software that was custom built for a very specific purpose, like bank transaction processing. Keith generally uses this to more broadly discuss non-cloud on-premises installations versus cloud software that runs on PASS or LASS services such as AWS or Google Cloud. Now that we got that vocab lesson out of the way, you could be wondering how involved Blend is with sensitive financial data. I think it's an important differentiator for, for our company that one of the ways that we preserve the privacy of both our clients, who are these partners with the lending institutions, and their clients, is that we don't really deal directly with any of the actual decision-making around the consumer finance. We just build systems that allow these companies better visibility into their, their borrowers. And so we don't deal with any kind of complicated financial models. We have a lot of machine learning models that help us um, apply rules and things like that, but they're not actually related to your personal finances. We, we rarely uh, see that information in, 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 in the cases that we do collect data like that. It's usually from machine to machine, just connecting one uh, group with the lender that needs some data and we pass it through in a really safe, encrypted way. We don't really examine that information. Back to the day. Now it's 9.30 a.m. He's got his iced latte from Starbucks in hand, and he's at his desk organizing his day in his calendar, penciling in time to work with his team and to work on his own projects. The first task of the day after that is reviewing system logs. But first, he has to power up his laptop. I think Monday's an interesting day because... You know, the finance world runs on this like Monday to Friday sort of clock, except during the summers when everyone just like leaves on Friday for some reason. <laughs> it's kind of magical. Um, I, I don't leave, but other people do. And um, and so Monday is sort of the recoup day where you get you have two days worth of server logs to look at. <laughs> you mentioned you power up your laptop. I want to talk about what kind of laptop you have because you're in a technical role. It's very important. So, um so I'm on a soapbox for a minute. So a lot of the uh, a lot of folks are really pumped about having super powerful laptops. It's just like tons of memory, and if it doesn't weigh 30 pounds, then it's not really a programmer's laptop. But um, my response to that is that pretty much everything is in the cloud now. Every one of my servers runs on some hardware that someone you know Amazon owns or Google owns, right? I don't need to carry a heavy laptop. I have a MacBook Pro. It's great. I mean, it is a super powerful computer, but at the same time. I can connect to any server I want with any amount of power or memory that I want at any time, as long as I have the internet. So MacBook Pro. This is wonderful because it's light. I, I tra- Like I said, I traveled a lot. I still travel some now. And so just slip it in your bag. It weighs like nothing. And I mean, it's all the power that you need to open up a terminal window and SSH to a server. That's it. So that's my powering up my laptop just actually involves plugging it into my dock. I do have an obsession with monitors, though. I'm going to let you know. I have a lot of monitors. I have three, but one of them is 42 inches. <laughs> yeah, and so I have that kind of arranged so everything sort of boots, and then I run my little script, and all my windows populate in all the correct areas on my screen. <laughs> Log in. I'm good to go. And then you say that you check the system logs for the services that you're building. Can you... 
I'm a person that is not technical at all. Can you explain sure. what a system log is? Sure. So I think there's different levels of it, but in essence, it's just literally a log of everything that's been happening that you've wanted to log that's happening on your system, on your server, in your program. The most basic form, obviously, being like text logs that are just like, this program started at this time, this program ended at this time, or it had an error at this time. Uh, obviously, because we're running production systems that people depend on, we collect a lot of really rich data about what's going on, how much memory is being used, all these other kinds of things. And the reason that we do it is because when something happens, you don't just want to correct that one instance of it. You want to understand all of the different um, kind of symptoms that brought that about and you want to correct all of those things so that you never have that that same type of problem again and if you do you see it instantly and a lot of times you can fix it automatically so good logging is a huge part of that and there's a lot of tools to help you find anomalies and things like that out there that are kind of machine learning automated but i still love to just check my logs just as a person um, in the mornings because sometimes you see cool stuff Examples of irregularities are latencies between blends different systems because, as you can imagine, there's a lot of complicated moving parts. There are times when Keith could find really cool stuff, like the system performing in an unexpected way. In both cases, he logs in great detail in a ticket, flags anyone necessary on the team, and moves on to the next task, which is code reviewing. We're now at 10.30 a.m. One of the things that we do as teams, we all have kind of experience in certain areas, things that we've coded or that we know best or techniques that we're the best at or whatever. And when people want to make changes to critical systems or any system actually in the code, it's really heavily controlled, right? We want to make sure that people aren't introducing bugs accidentally or on purpose, which honestly never happens at our company, which is great. But, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, it's an audit trail and you need to be able to provide that audit trail to your customers and to yourself um, for, for peace of mind. You need to know what's going on. And so when people want to make changes to the code, they'll basically write all their code. They put it up and we, we use GitHub um, or like a private hosted version of that. And so you get to see a diff of the code, what's changed in the code and usually comments from the person that's making that change. Why am I making the change? What was the business case? Like, this is why I think this is the best way to do it. And you go through it line by line and you make sure as someone that's close to that subject matter, the subject matter expert or sub expert, that what is being done makes sense. And we always work in pairs. So no one person ever commits something to our servers without it being reviewed by minimum one other subject matter expert. And most commonly, especially in our, our larger systems, multiple people review it. So the code base might be kind of vast, and then each area of the code base has specific um, experts, and those experts are pulled in whenever things in that area are touched. Uh, and that makes us kind of a little bit more cautious about just, you know, just like click it, set it, and forget it, and be like, hey, it'll be fine. You know, <laughs> we don't do that. So then what's your area of expertise then? Because you review some of this stuff, right? Yes, I do. Every morning. It's fun. Um, so uh, we have a couple. We use the kind of a microservice architecture um, for our, our backend, which means there are a lot of little services that have their own context, like their own business context. So rather than writing a really huge application that can be sort of unwieldy to grow or change or build, we have a lot of little applications that are really purpose built. So it's easy to update them, remove them, add new ones, whatever needs to happen, depending on the shifts in the business. And so I work a lot on our integration server, things that are related to the API, things that are related to um, file generation for our customers. Uh, we have like different interchange formats that are common in the banking industry. So um, all the transforms related to that. And then 
more kind of on the more fun computer science, like cool project side, we have a couple of systems that our group has built that deal with task management. So asynchronous task management, um, when we have like long, complicated chains of tasks that need to happen, uh, we have systems that coordinate those between all the other little systems and external systems. So debugging those. So you're reviewing this, right? That's right. And you are looking at it from, you know, making sure that it fits, blends criteria and right. their prod, like where where are you getting that guidance from i guess is that just like no that's a really good question um i think most most large companies have um written <clears throat> style guides not just for their marketing materials but also for their 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 coders for their engineers and that's about you know what are the approved languages what are the approved systems that you can work with like these things that fit our regulatory requirements right we have a similar situation so we're obviously in the finance space so there are regulatory requirements uh, other people need to look at this and make sure that it's safe and secure and all that sort of stuff so we have a list of approved technologies um we experiment a lot, but things that make it to production obviously have a lot of rigor behind them. So there's a set of things that we prefer you to use for that that have been pre-approved, pre-vetted. Blend's startup status allows employees the agency to suggest solutions or additions to the company's approved practices with what Keith calls the different architectural councils within the company. Employees with ideas follow a request for comment process to make sure the proposal is workshopped and thought about from all angles of the business before it's presented to the CTO. Those kind of changes. If you see an opportunity um, and you think that you can do something better, Everyone is usually willing to listen. There's not a lot of ego, which I think is super fun. Because people are, are ready to learn new stuff. And the answer is usually, it's not like people are like grasping onto these old systems. They're like, delete it. Let's build it today. You know, <clears throat> it's great. Yeah, it's really fun. I wanted to jump into the specific programming languages that you are an expert on and then what Blend uses as a whole as well. Are you an expert on everything? I am not an expert <laughs> on everything. I started learning um, just basic HTML, learning to program websites when I was little. And I think my, for my first formal programming training was basic on an Apple IIe. <laughs> so yeah, back in the day. And then uh, moving on to C, C++ are my strongest languages just from work that I, I've done previously. Blend itself doesn't really use that a lot. We're pretty much entirely web-based. So the common things that we use are JavaScript. We use a variant called TypeScript, which is like a typed JavaScript. Yeah, it, it just reduces the availability of mistakes. So it's really it's really great, especially if you're using a development tool like VS Code or something like that that has parsing. And so if you like mouse over it, it'll tell you, oh, this is, you can't do this. This is wrong because somewhere else in your code, you told me this is not how it should look, right? So that we use, we use that a lot, but it's, it's basically just JavaScript with a little sugar on top. Yep. So JavaScript um, Node is one of our primary things, Node.js, which is like a, a framework for JavaScript to help build web servers quickly and efficiently. And then Golang is our other really big one. Go, uh, it's just called Go. It's a Google uh, invention, I'd say, Google programming language invention. And it's got a lot of great lower level memory handling features that make it wonderful for programs that you need to write for the web. It's kind of this web, web first attitude, but that need to be really optimized. Whereas JavaScript is definitely just web first. It's not necessarily optimized. It's really easy to like de-optimize JavaScript, um, whereas Go is designed to be optimal. So high-speed things, maybe I'm processing documents, images, doing some sort of learning algorithms on the data you're inputting on your website, that sort of stuff is kind of what that tool is built for. So those are our two primary web, web technologies. 
As we mentioned in the UseTheForce.com series, Go is definitely a programming language to watch out for in the future. It's now 11.30 a.m. and Keith spends this time to work on his own personal projects for Blend. Right now, he's working on a design spec, which is a step that comes after the request for comment process we mentioned earlier. And that's sort of what the design spec uh, that I mentioned is, is where you think you have the solution to this problem that someone has, has challenged you with. And now you want to convince them exactly how you have that solution and what it's going to cost the company, whether in time or resources or something to to execute. So th- during this time, you were working on um, just getting all of that together. Yep. So, yeah, exactly. Working on um, so specifically was working on how to sync information between several different systems. Um, and it's an interesting and really fun and challenging problem because you have to keep track of where the, the source of truth is at any given time. And determining that's pretty hard. So uh, I was working on a shared design doc. And it's normally not just one person working on this. Several people from different areas of expertise will be working together, drawing diagrams, writing out you know schemas, code snippets, pseudocode, that sort of stuff, just to give the reader an idea of how you're going to proceed enough with enough detail that um, you can provide work estimates so that you can kind of say, look, I know that this is going to cost, you know, one engineering month, but I think it'll save us 10 engineering months over the next two years, that sort of thing. So you want to be able to make that case. Who decides what you work on day to day in terms of like your personal projects? Interesting question. So there, uh, there is a larger vision that the organization is driving to. And, and that vision is, has been fairly uh, constant and consistent since I have been there. And how we kind of move towards that vision in a particular quarter gets decided by our product organization. So we have this really cool, really dynamic product organization that actually is led by our CEO. <clears throat> I, I personally, I, I don't know if you can quote me on this, but I think it's his passion. I personally think it's his passion. <laughs> so he um, he heads up our product group uh, in addition to being the CEO. Again, someone that doesn't sleep somehow. Does a great job at it. And basically they set kind of these ideas of like, we think that the future is this and we're going to work on it for this quarter or the next two quarters or the next year or the next two years. Maybe it's a five-year goal. And then they work backwards as a product org to kind of think about what the market fit is for the individual project components that'll help us get there. So we get that information and that information is sort of discussed with the engineering managers, the resource allocation side of the engineering management team. They will talk to the subject matter experts in the different departments, kind of figure out how long it'll take to build something. Is it feasible? How many people? And then they take all that data back and product and the engineering kind of people management. They work together to make a plan for that quarter of what we're going to work on. So you have these high level projects that you're driving towards. One of the cool things and one of my favorite things about Blend is that people don't just walk around and hand out like you're coding these four things this month. Usually it's a conversation where an engineering manager or a product manager will come to you and say, I want to be able to do this when I log in. Tell me how you think I can do that. Work with your team to figure out how you can meet these acceptance criteria. How can you make the the application work this way? And then, um, you know, do it. Make it make it work. Deliver it. And so you get a lot of freedom of kind of how creative or not creative you want to be. In, in the process. You can let the product manager completely drive your development cycle if, if maybe you're busy working on something else and you just need that work stream. Or you can take it upon yourself to work with the product manager and the engineering kind of resource manager and develop a project. 
After he works on the design spec, it's now 1 p.m., his favorite time of the day. He's not him when he's hungry. I love lunch. Lunch is important to me. It's like super important to me. Um, one of my favorite things about lunchtime is that people actually step away from their desks and I get to eat. Those are my two favorite things, actually. It's a great time to sort of disconnect from what you're doing, refresh your brain, just kind of get to know your coworkers a little bit better. Yeah, I love lunch. And Yes, lunch does devolve a lot of times into whiteboarding sessions in the engineering group. Like, well, we'll start talking about cool stuff and then we'll end with a whiteboard because it's a burning problem that someone has to solve. But I, I think it's a nice time to connect with people and just step back. It's now 2 p.m. and it's time for pod standups. Keith does a better job explaining what a pod is. Basically, we have like a this kind of hierarchy that's not a hierarchy. So again, functional groups and obviously our strategies change the things that we're working on change so rather than having a department like my department is integrations like it used to be now we have all these people what we do is we create like functional work units large units for like large quarterly strategies or yearly strategies and then subunits that are helping drive individual goals that kind of roll up to that so the larger kind of department or larger group whatever you want to call it is people working on the same concept or the same like revenue goal, the same business purpose. And then the individual components are how we're going to get there. And the pod is one of the individual components. And so, for example, um, perhaps one of our goals is to create an entirely new an entirely new customer experience for a particular type of loan. Well, there's a bunch of pods that are going to be a part of that. There's going to be a pod that work on the the front the front end user experience. There's going to be a pod that's going to interface with our partners and make sure that we can get the data in the same way. There's going to be a pod that's thinking through all of the compliance and regulatory issues, like so that sort of. So then, does this um, pod grouping also work with sprint planning as well? Like it's all integrated. Yes, and and that's so, what you're doing next. After exactly, this, that's right? what, and that's not every day. To be clear, so our sprints. People have different sprint lengths. We happen to choose two weeks because it also seems to be really related to a lot of the partners that we have. So we try to like keep our work units aligned. So we work in these two-week groupings. What can you accomplish in two weeks as an individual engineer? What can you deliver as your pod? What is your entire group going to deliver in that two-week period? Um, and the reason that we do that is... One, to keep things really time-bounded and, and small. So you're like kind of always progressing forward. Even if something seems insurmountable or like overwhelming, you just kind of want to keep walking, right? You don't ever want to stop. Um, and then the other reason is because it having those like kind of discrete units of work allows other pods and other groups to then plan against what you're doing in a way that's way more efficient than being like, yeah, by the end of the quarter, we're going to have X, Y, and Z. Keith sprint planning specifically for the pod that's responsible for building infrastructure for integration technology for handling specific integration points for their clients. What does that mean exactly? So we do have an infrastructure team and we consider that that team, the group of folks who work on the underlying systems that run the whole company, kind of how what we build on top of, I guess, would be the best way to think of that group. Our group is building a layer above that, which is the infrastructure to handle pulling all the data in from our partners and getting that to our customers. It could be bi-directional. In this particular instance, the sprint planning we were actually working on, something that relates to syncing multiple systems together at, at the same time. So coordination between like a lot of different partner systems. And that's kind of what we were, were aiming for, for for this one. So now it's three o'clock and you're doing some design review. Yes. Uh, design review is something that happens after you have completed an engineering spec and people feel really comfortable with it. Usually you iterate with your your 
you know, partners, the people that you work the closest with a little bit to get input and make sure your ideas are sound. Then you kind of put it up to people that have more experience with you for some initial review. Finally, when you feel comfortable with what you've designed in your spec, we have an engineering review. And this is where generally the most experienced people, the subject matter experts that happen to be in the company come in and they, they will have reviewed your spec already. A lot of times they will have already commented and you would have conversations. This is more of like a group decision of, is this comfortable to begin work on? Are there any major concerns? Do we need to go back to the drawing board? And using kind of all of their experience, drawing on that that experience well. So design review, um, they can take anywhere from like 15 minutes to two hours, depending on how contentious the issue is, how many people need to be invited, how exciting the issue is. Sometimes if it's like something really cool, people show up just because it's super cool. So during that process, basically, we were just looking at a design that someone in our group had made. I happened to be on the reviewing side of it that time rather than the talking side of it that time. Which side do you like better? Uh, I definitely like the talking side better. I find the reviewing side to be super intense. You know, when someone asks you for like an opinion that is really final, you just, it's a, it's a very time consuming, right? You spend a lot of time analyzing every little bit of it to make sure that you're giving the right advice and you're not misleading someone because right? you're educating. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. So that's kind of three o'clock. I think that probably took an hour. And this particular day, it's always it's always fun, <laughs> especially when you give someone the green stamp at the end because people get real excited. They're like, rush out of the room, run right back to their desk, and suddenly you have a bunch of pull requests. Like, all the things that I dreamed of are coming true. It's now 4 p.m. and Keith is in headphone mode now, coding. But before he does anything else, Keith grabs another cup of coffee. So this is another block that I put down. Literally on my calendar, it just says, do not book coding. A lot of folks do that too, right? So you plan that time to focus. And um, in our role, there's an unspoken, spoken kind of, I guess, understanding that when you have your headphones on, you're to be left alone. Like, is the building on fire? Okay, you can interrupt my headphone time. (laughs) Is the building not on fire? now's not now's not the appropriate time for a conversation so and people really respect that because you're kind of in your headspace and a lot of times i might not even listen to music i might just have my headphones on with noise canceling on and just really be focusing on a on a problem or challenge but i find that that time for me i, I kind of get into that coding flow and it's just like any other creative endeavor you know it's it's a lot of experience a lot of science but also a lot of creativity you just sort of need to get in the rhythm and it, and being in your own headspace helps me and i guess a lot of other people that work at least in, in the new york office uh so yes headphone time very important what were you coding do you remember in, on this day oh uh, let's see what was i coding oh yeah actually i do remember what i was coding on this day so i got really excited <laughs> about uh changing the way our our system health checks work so we have this these things called health checks, which a lot of people have in their servers that reach out to the servers at certain intervals and gather information to make sure that they're not dead. And a lot of times they gather ancillary data to help determine other signs of health. And I had an idea for changing the way that we did it. And I, I probably I probably spent almost an hour doing literally nothing, just like fiddling good times. And then it is brainstorming time. Yes. So I think I was pretty brain dead by the end of this day. And I decided that I really liked the idea of these health checks and that I wanted to go talk to everyone that was sitting around me about it uh, and go to the kitchen and eat cheese. So yeah, so we just rolled the whiteboard into the kitchen, pulled out snacks and just started drawing about how we could extend this and like, hey, these are the things I found in the last hour. I'm really excited about it. What do you guys think? On this particular day, Keith was out of the office by six, but that's a rarity for him. He tries his best to unplug and recharge, but his passion for programming gets in the way most of the time. I try to limit my day because I felt like I could just keep going, especially if I'm in kind of in the zone. But 
I will burn out. And, and that's something to really keep in mind is like, you may be kind of hopped up on caffeine. You may be super excited to be coding whatever you're coding, but it's really important, honestly, in my mind, like take a moment and just turn it off, yeah. right? Which I, as we will talk about in a moment, did not do a great job of doing on this day. <laughs> I, I went home. I took the subway home because it started raining. And then I got home and I was still into it. So I just started coding again. Is this something for Blend or is yes. this something? Okay. Workaholic over here. I was here. just like super pumped <laughs> and I was like writing home and I had some ideas to solve an issue that I couldn't solve before. And then um, and my husband was like, get off your computer. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask what, like, what peels you away i guess is family time yeah i i i think it's important sometimes you're in the flow sometimes you're working just like any creative thing but you also have to know when to like turn it off and enjoy what you have in your life right and just take a moment because honestly you don't you don't want to work 15 hour days forever you want to take the time to let your brain recharge and you'll be better off the next day and like that process of experiencing other things is what i think helps you be creative in the long run So you just experienced a day in the life of a software engineer, but how does one actually become one? In part two of the software and soft skills series, join us as we go through Keith Sora's career journey and experiences leading up to where he is today. Something that always kept Keith moving forward in his career was his intense curiosity and willingness to learn. But that also meant stepping out of his comfort zone to do so. Learn how Keith has been working at improving his hard and soft skills from retail to computer programming so you can too. Stay tuned. At Experience a Day in the Life, we're building an online library of content all focused on a diddle or a day in the life of different jobs and professions across the world in all different industries. So if you want to share your a diddle, you can do so at xadiddle.com slash share dash my dash a diddle. That's x-a-d-i-t-l dot com slash share dash my dash a-d-i-t-l. Thanks for listening. Head over to xadiddle.com. That's x-a-d-i-t-l.com. There you can find the show notes for this series and more A Day in the Life articles. And you can get to know us and our guests more by joining our communities on social media. Follow at xadiddle on Instagram and on LinkedIn by searching for Krista Bow and Matt with one T Poe. If you learned something in this episode, please take some time to help our mission by leaving a positive rating and review of the show. Each week, we bring you a new interview series with guests from different jobs and different industries. In each series, we'll live a specific day in the life, hour by hour, and experience their career journey. So don't forget to subscribe.